The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. But yeah, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time at the beginning kind of just going through some of the basics of historical materialism because I feel like that's where you have to start. And then I'm going to really go into the origins of class society. And I kind of hate how they pose this as like a question, have there always been rich or poor? Because now I feel kind of compelled to answer it to start my talk. And no, there have not always been rich or poor. And I go into a lot more around that. But the short answer to the question, if you have to leave, is no. And for the vast majority of human history, people have lived very differently than they live today. And you know, when we look at history, we have to remember that. So um, OK, so how many people in here taken a history class recently? Is anybody here? Okay. Is anybody here a history major in college? <laughs> okay, I apologize. I'm not a history major. I'm actually a science um, major, and I actually teach science. So this is a little bit. Um, I learned a lot through the research for this talk, but feel free to bring in other material. I I, I can't cover everything, um, and it was actually like we were talking earlier, a little bit hard to find resources that go through really a materialist understanding of the development of class society. So I'm kind of piecing together some different sources. Um, this book is a great place to start. Um, this is a very popular book that people may have. I know a lot of college students are reading this as part of their classes, so I feel like this was a good one for me to read as well. And people might be talking about this book. I think there's definitely some, some good things in here too. So. Um, the problem, though, with most history classes is that they look at history in a very static way. Um, they emphasize changes brought about by great men, sometimes great women, sometimes great people of color, but you know, mostly great white men. Um, and they show history as a series of upheavals um, that restructure and reorder society, but without showing the incre incremental developments. Um, and the causes of these changes. And so I'm going to try in this talk to, to both talk about the period of great upheaval in the creation of class society, but also try to frame it in that there were a number of incremental changes that took place over time that led to that. Um, and it, we have to understand both. We have to keep both in our heads. Um, history classes also tend to emphasize that the more ruthless people seem to get ahead the most often in history. I mean, you, you kind of like, there's this choice you make. Do you want to be a great leader or do you want to be nobody? And if you're a great leader, you have to step on everybody in your way. And, and actually, you know, the great generals, kings, and thinkers of history have looked out for their own interests above all others, and through this selfishness were able to get ahead and claim victories. And that setup is kind of like this is part of the reinforcement of, of the way in which capitalism tells us we have to look out for ourselves and be individual, and so it's no accident that history is taught um, in that way. Um, many of us know dates and names of great people, titles of different historical periods, but not really a real sense of what actually caused many of these historical periods to develop and what is their connection to previous periods. So I'm going to try to kind of to give an example in this talk of how to do that. Um, for example, I teach um, fifth graders, and one of the unfortunate things I have to teach is about the explorers. And there's a lot of crappy material out there about how you, you know, and it's literally like Columbus. And the good news is, is he's very vilified now. Like, he's no longer the great man that he was when I was in school. But, it, you know, it's still like he's this man who made history. And one of the things I do with my students is I pose the question, if not Columbus, would it have been someone else, given the historical period that he was living in? And most of my students answer that question with yes, because the system of empire was dominating the way people made decisions and you know capitalist um, the beginning of capitalism and the need for for raw materials was causing people to seek out these new you know and they kind of have this understanding that it's not just about him 
but about kind of the process that created um, the space for him to do what he did. And so I think that's an important way to look at history, and I'm going to attempt to do my best to try to frame this talk in that way. Um, so Marx and Engels developed a different way of viewing history than the way most of us were taught, and it's called historical materialism. Materialism prior to the time of Marx and Engels was mostly used in a mechanical way to explain the natural world of science, and what Marx and Engels did is take this opening around scientific discoveries and start to apply it to the study of social science, and that was a huge step forward. Um, and I want to read an Engels quote here on materialism. He says, when therefore is, it is a question of investigating the driving forces which consciously or unconsciously, and indeed often unconsciously, lie behind the motives of men in their historical actions, and which constitute the real driving forces of history, then it is not a question so much of the motives of single individuals, however, however eminent, as of those motives which set in motion the great masses, whole peoples, and again, whole classes of the people in each people, and here too, not the transient flaring up of the straw fire which quickly dies down, but a lasting action resulting in a great historical transformation. And that's very, very wordy, but basically I think what it does is it gets at the key difference between historical materialism and the way many of us were taught history. Ingalls uses the application of scientific principles to study history and to discover the underlying material forces that move the masses, not the individual, but the masses, consciously or unconsciously towards the development of new ways of relating to the material conditions in the world around them. So I like the way that he frames it in that it's not just the straw fire here and the quick upheaval or this individual makes this decision, but kind of what are the underlying forces that are moving the masses in a particular direction? And, and how can we um, understand that? So materialists put stress on the interaction between the development of relations of production and the forces of production. Humans find new ways of producing the necessities of life, which can often ease material problems, but not always, as we're going to learn in the development of class society. Um, these new ways of producing began to create new relations between members of the group, and at a certain point people need to decide whether to embrace these new social relations or reject them. This materialist lens helps us understand the development of class society, not as an abrupt occurrence in one particular corner of the ancient world, but rather as a gradually developing relationship between people, nature, and the methods of production people created for their own survival. Class society does not develop because one group of people became greedier than another, or because a small group of leaders finally decided to be in charge and everyone just said, okay, here's a bunch of stuff that we've labored to produce and you can now control it. Um, and I know that's a really kind of grotesque way to put it, but I think sometimes people have that idea that like, there emerges this selfish group of people that all of a sudden decide to go to war with each other, or all of a sudden decide to, to take control, and that's not actually what happened. Um, as we look at the transformation from pre-class to class society, we will notice two important things I want everyone to keep in mind um, as I'm going through this. First of all, that class society developed out of progress that was made of humans managing nature um, in order to produce enough to sustain themselves and their communities. In this way, class society came about as a result of production methods that were overall historically productive. So there were things that came with class society that were, that were historically progressive, sorry. There were things that came with class society that were often, there are things that came along with class society that were, were not necessarily celebrating, but overall it was a historically progressive change because it represented people controlling nature in a way that was a more sustainable way to develop. 
Um, and that class society, the other thing I want people to keep in mind is that class society developed out of a change in material production from hunter-gatherer to sustainable mm -hmm. agriculture. But it happened at different times and in different ways all over the world. It was a gradual process that took many centuries to fully accomplish and was not the result of one group of people suddenly deciding to control another group of people, but rather a fundamental reordering of social relationships. And so the one thing I would say about this book that's really good is that he goes through he uses examples of specific developments in agriculture, but he also continues to constantly say, this is just an example. It happened in different ways in other places. It happened later in some places than in others, but there are actual reasons, material reasons for that. And it's not that one group of people was more advanced or ahead of, you know. Um, so, and, and, and that this process took place over centuries is important to remember, because I'm gonna try to condense it here, but it really, it, it progressed over a long period of time. And then the last thing I want people to keep in mind around um, materialism, and this was some of what came up in other meetings, is this idea that materialism is not deterministic, um, that history is opportunities but with constraints, and that there are ob objective and subjective elements to the way we look at history. Marx famously said, people make history but not in conditions of their choosing. I'm gonna focus a lot on the conditions that created the changes in, in society, but that's not to say that people didn't have an active role in changing their, their own um, relationships as well. So it's, I, I, it's kind of like a caveat in that I don't unfortunately have enough research to go through some of the um, specifics of, I, I'm gonna stop there with my caveat, sorry. Um, all right, so let's start with pre-class society. In order to understand where class comes from, one must first look at how people organize themselves before class society. For the vast majority of human history, people have lived in communal societies where people for their own survival had to be mutually dependent on one another. Societies in pre-class time were not characterized by oppression and inequality. These rather are the products of class society. Anthropologist Richard Lee summarized his findings about pre-class human society like this, quote, before the rise of the state and the entrenchment of social inequality, people lived for millennia in small scale kin-based social groups in which the core institutions of economic life included collective or common ownership of land and resources, generalized reciprocity in the distribution of food, and relatively egalitarian political relations. So it's important for us to keep that in mind. In other words, the answer to this talk is that absolutely there has not always been rich or poor. In fact, for about 95% of the time humans have walked the earth and been down from the trees, <laughs> there were no rulers, no ruled, no oppressors, and no oppressed. Um, this also disputes all the false scientific claims that human nature is inherently greedy. I feel like that's another way in which this plays out, that humans are born greedy and violent. And it actually shows that man's initial instinct when they developed the capacity um, to exert some control over nature was not to, to take something off by themselves and live individually, but instead to work together in order to increase their chance of survival. Um, not to fight with each other and battle over scarce resources. So, you know, the, the image of the caveman stealing the last piece of meat from somebody. You know, that's not how people live. People lived in very egalitarian ways and in fact, um, you know, that the vast majority of human history is, is misportrayed of people. Um, never mind, sorry. <laughs> I need to continue to read so I don't get off track. Um, so in reality, people's lack of control over nature made them inherently dependent on one another for survival. 
Historically, pre-class societies were based primarily on hunter-gatherer economies, so I'm going to talk a little bit about what a hunter-gatherer society looked like. Gatherers supplied the most reliable sources of food and hunters the most valued nutritionally, nutritionally. So they were both valuable to society and in many ways equally valued. Those who spent their days hunting depended on gatherers for their daily survival. And those who gathered depended on hunters to add much needed nutritional elements to their diet. Hunters and gatherers also did not work alone and went about their labor in groups. At every point, the premium was placed on cooperative and collective values. This does not, however, mean that life was idealistic and fulfilling for pre-class people. Um, although I will point out later how many pre-class societies lived, lived pretty well, um, depending on where they were in the world, and that you know natural abundance did actually exist in certain places, and people did actually have um, leisure time and things like that. Um, but you know, it doesn't. We don't glorify this as like like a back to nature. We should go back to hunter gatherer because there were you know in many ways, it represents the lack of control over nature, um, which means that survival was still something that was in question. And the reason why people had to depend on each other was because of this very lack of control and their interdependence on each other in order to survive. Um, most of their time in a hunter-gatherer society was spent hunting and gathering in order to eke out enough sustenance to survive. And it's not until the Neolithic period um, and the development of more advanced tools and agriculture that people became less reliant on what they found in nature to provide them with all they needed to survive and more able um, through their own accumulated understanding to exert some control over nature and have a more sustainable existence. Um, so I want to talk about the development of agriculture and I want to just also clear up that the development of agriculture isn't necessarily the development of class society, that there's actually, uh, you know, the development of agriculture didn't automatically lead to um, inequality and um, classes, that it was a process. And I want to kind of spend some time going through that because I think it's important for us to, to understand that. So the first big changes in the way people lived occurred about 10,000 years ago. People took up a new way of making a livelihood in certain parts of the world. Most notably for our discussion, I'm going to focus on the area of the Middle East called the Fertile Crescent. Most people have heard about it in their history classes, so that's why I'm going to. But Mesoamerica and there are other places where very similar um, developments occurred. Um, people in the Neolithic age learned to cultivate crops rather than relying on nature to provide them. And they began to domesticate animals rather than only hunt them. This turn to agriculture began to transform the whole way of living. Um, and however progressive historically this was in the long term, um, there were actually um, agricultural societies that did not necessarily lead people to have an easier life than their ancestors. So this idea that like people decided to develop agriculture because it made life so much easier for them. People worked just as hard and just as long, but they worked differently, and that created new social relations. Um, for many millennia, some hunter-gatherer societies lived in relatively stable, plentiful communities. In Turkey, for example, the climate in Turkey in ancient times led family groups to settle in certain areas where they were able to gather enough grains for survival with a relatively low workload. In fact, they were like the first people to work the eight-hour day, like the ancient people of Turkey were, you know, eight hours a day, and they found plentiful grains and um, were able to survive and actually they even began to store extra surplus grains in clay pots thus ensuring their survival over the long term. But something changed that brought about the conditions and the need for agricultural development in certain places in the world. About 10,000 years ago the global chi climate changed dramatically and, and 
in broad strokes, it got a lot drier. Um, but in particular areas of the world where there was an abundance of certain crops, the dry climate produced the need to actually think about a new way of, of sustaining yourself. So the area around the Fertile Crescent became drier. It caused a decline in the availability of wild grains and sub subsequently a decrease in the deer and antelope populations, which were also <coughs> partaking of the grains. The hunter-gatherer villages faced a crisis. They could no longer live as they had been living. They had two choices, to break up into smaller family units and return to a nomadic way of life, or find a way to make up for the deficiencies of nature with their own labor. Over the years, people had actually accumulated a vast knowledge of plant life and growth cycles from living off of wild vegetation. And so that's an important precondition for the development of agriculture is that people had experience and knowledge, understanding how grains worked, what was edible, what was not. This tree looks more abundant than this tree, so when we're gonna cultivate it, let's take this one and plant it. So there was a way in which um, all of this was pre-dependent on people's experience um, with wild plant life. And they began to use this knowledge that they had accumulated to plant the seeds of wild plants and over time became discerning about which seeds would yield the highest return and plant only those seeds. So in that way, agriculture developed um, um, rather quickly and successfully. These plants began to breed new domesticated varieties which were much more useful than wild plants. Regular harvests made it possible also to tether and feed more tame varieties of wild sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys, and these tamed animals would then breed future animals that were even tamer, and thus the domestication of animals begins. The first societies like this were called horticultural societies and involved a clearing away of land and then several years of use of that land and then moving on to another. So it's not, we don't automatically jump to the permanent township, village, city, you know, this horticultural way of life was still clear away the land, use it, and then when it no longer is yielding, um, productive crops move on to another one. So there was still an element of, um, of movement and um, it wasn't a permanent society. This reorganization of society also involved technical advances. The name Neolithic refers to the use of new stone tools like axes that were used in harvesting crops and clearing land. Over the course of centuries, this change in the mode of production developed into agricultural society. So again, over the course of centuries, it wasn't like this happened in one generation or two generations. This was over the course of history, over the course of centuries, hundreds of years. The move to agriculture as a means of production instead of hunter-gatherer methods brought about a total reorganization of the way people worked and lived, even if the process took place over a prolonged period of time. So even though it took place over time, it threw up these new kind of um, new ways of organizing society. Socially, people became more firmly rooted to their village than ever before. They could not wander off because they had to tend crops between planting and harvesting cycles, so that was a material condition for them to grow. They had to keep an eye on, on the crops. People also had to figure out new ways of cooperating to clear land. Um, you can't clear a forest by yourself, so you have to figure out how are we actually gonna organize the clearing away of land, um, who's gonna decide what land we clear, all of those things became um, new parts of society. Um, there were, people also had to figure out how to store harvest, how to share stocks, how to raise children. All of these things um, needed to be done a little differently in agricultural society. Whole new patterns of social life developed, and with them new ways of viewing the world, which became expressed in various myths, ceremonies, and rituals. 
though organized religion did not develop until later, and I'm actually going to talk about that because that's an important part of the development of class society in the state, is that it goes hand in hand with the development of institutionalized religion, which I find very interesting, and um, I'll bring that up a little bit more later. Um, despite all these changes in social organization, there was still nothing resembling class and state authority until many thousands of years after the development of agriculture. So like I said, um, this takes place over a long period of time. Um, and especially notions around private property and things like that did not develop out of the first time people started planting crops in the ground. It was still very much a communal process. It was still, but these new ideas about how to reorganize society people started to kind of grapple with them. And out of that, we see the seeds for class society later. As late as 3000 to 4000 BC, anthropologists have found evidence that suggests significant, this is a quote, okay, thanks. Significant differentiation in wealth was almost entirely absent. So we go from you know 10,000 years ago and then thousands of years later, there's still not a significant differentiation in wealth. There's still not the, the um, the traditional idea of class society that we have. Households tended to be responsible for cultivating a particular piece of land, but private property in land form as we know it today did not exist, nor did the drive for individuals to pile up stocks of personal possessions at the expense of others. So there's still, I mean, it, it, class society takes time to develop. However, there was one final important social change that did occur as a result of the Neolithic and agricultural revolution. On certain occasions, the spread of crop raising and herding led to the first differentiation into social ranks. And I use the term social ranks and not class because I'm going to get into how that's a little bit different later. What anthropologists call chieftainships or kingdoms arose with some individuals enjoying a greater prestige than others. This, however, was nothing like the class distinctions that would come later. And chieftains did not consume a surplus which others worked to produce without working themselves. In fact, the premium was on their service to the community and chieftains and kings in this period of time often worked harder than everyone else as a way of maintaining their high status in society. And that's because at this time society still valued egalitarian principles and cooperative principles over all others. When that changes, you see a change in the way, um, in the way these chieftains and kings um, um, develop their power. So what changed? How did agricultural society develop into class society? About 5,000 years ago, civilization, as we understand it today, began to develop. And I use the term civilization. <laughs> I'm sorry to use all these terms. This is kind of the way anthropologists talk about it, like horticulture, agriculture, civilization. And civilization is really where we start to see the development of class society. So I'm distinguishing that just from agricultural development, because it does come later. It does come over a process of time. But keep in mind all of the stuff about the beginnings of having to reorder some of your social relationships in a agricultural society. That was kind of the groundwork that was laid for the development of class society later. So I'm really trying to kind of go back to the historical materialist way of explaining things and go through like there were these preconditions that existed that happened over hundreds of years but were essential in the formation of class society. I don't know if that makes sense, but moving on. Okay, so civilization as we understand it began to develop. We see the evidence of these ancient civilizations and the wonders of the art and architecture they have left behind. The great pyramids of Egypt, the temples of Machu Picchu, scrolls marked with ancient scripts, um, numbers, the remnants of copper and bronze tools. So we see a massive advance um, 
in, in the development of society. None of this greatness would have been possible without a turn to agriculture that had happened centuries before. In order to sustain agriculture in times of hardship, a society had two choices. So agriculture as a, is not necessarily just the basis for class society. What happens is when an agricultural society experiences hardship or crisis, then we start to see the development of, of classes. And, and basically, um, in times of hardship in an agricultural society, you have two choices. One, warfare to raid neighbors, um, neighboring societies for their supplies. And this led to the development of more advanced weaponry and led to the development of starting to see, hmm, okay, we're not, we don't have enough food, they have enough food. If we're superior to them in terms of our weaponry, we can actually take their food and um, it allows us to survive. And then another solution that came out of, of some of the hardships was the development of more intensive and productive forms of agriculture, which placed a premium on technological innovation. Such technological innovations could be as simple as deciding what crops to plant, but also invo involved using larger domesticated animals, like oxen and later horses to pull plows. So these were all technological advances that happened as a result of trying to have a more productive form of agriculture. These changes caused new and different forms of cooperation. The use of the plow, for instance, increased the division of labor between the sexes, since it was a form of labor not easily done by pregnant or nursing women. So I'm not going to go into the origins of women's oppression, but I will relate it back to agriculture and that the development of the plow is one of the things that helped create a division of labor between the sexes, which later became an unequal um, division of labor with the formation of, of family units. The building of irrigation canals also led to a division between the numerous people required to do the physical work of building the canals and the handful of people needed to actually supervise. You can't just say, everybody in this room, let's go out and build an irrigation canal, you know, canal, and people go, yes, I know exactly how to do that. You have to have a group of people who are like, you dig here and you dig until you reach him and that's gonna, you know, and so there becomes this relationship between people actually doing the labor and then people who are actually directing and planning the labor. Um, the storing of food also led to divisions between those who maintained the stores of food and those who were responsible for filling them. Technological development for the first time permitted some people to concentrate on things other than agricultural activities. And so we also see the rise of craft work and handiwork during this time because some people are able to say, I'm going to build the tools that are going to help make our agriculture more productive. And that's valuable because we, we are you know, the premium is now on being more productive and on technological innovation. But that means you're going to still labor in the field, I'm going to eat what you produce, but I'm going to be doing something different. And so we start to see a greater division of labor. Um, at the same time, we also see, because of this more productive agriculture, a rise in the population growth. And Jared Diamond puts it interesting in his book, he's like, well, population growth went up, and food production increased. And it's kind of like, which came first? It's like a chicken or the egg. I mean, I don't really know, but I know that they both are mutually dependent on each other. If you can't produce enough food, you can't grow a bigger population. So these advances actually allowed people to have larger families and society started to become more populated. Um, and this newly developing social pattern, sorry, hang on, let me go back. And so what we see with population growth as well is, is the ability for people to start to have towns and cities that aren't just small um, kin-based social units, but, but now are um, larger and larger populations um, concentrated around a particular agricultural source. 
In this newly developing social pattern, those who controlled the grain stores became the first priests and rose to a higher social status than others because of their control over the essential resource needed for sustenance. Also, the folks who controlled the grain tended to be the people who were more, um, had, had some more of this technological knowledge about the growth of plants and things like that. And so they would say, you know, you need to plant this here, we need to water it three times a day. And then, you know, when that worked, people were like, oh, you know, you, you should be helping direct agriculture. And um, so the storing of food actually became a position that was now separate from the growing of food. And um, the storehouses of grain became really like the first temples and their keepers rose to almost supernatural status. So over a period of time, the people who controlled the grain were seen as separate and often above those who labored to, to produce the stores. As part of their role, priests began making marks on stone or clay to keep a record of incoming and outgoing food. And so thus also the form of writing helps to solidify, you know, the person who controls the grain as being different than the people who actually produce the grain. Um, groups began to concentrate around these grain storehouses and organize transportation, the exchange of crafts and cooking areas in relation to these storehouses. Um, thus, over time, villages became towns, towns arose into cities, all around this kind of idea of storing a surplus of grain. Um, there's evidence for this process occurring around 5,000 years ago in both Mesoamerica and the Fertile Crescent. It certainly happened in other places, though evidence is less available, and this process may have occurred at later or different times. Um, there's also, and Jared Diamond goes through this in his book, societies that developed this way then kind of forced this idea on, on other neighboring societies that were still um, even hunter-gatherer societies and things like that. And so in a way, the, the early development of agriculture was spread both because it was um, producing more sustainable living, but also by force. So it's not just that it was more progressive and everyone just said, yay, I'm glad you guys figured this out, let's all do it. There was also um, a lot of conflict. Um, the development of civilization came at a price. Technological advances were used to produce and store a surplus over and above what was needed for basic sustenance. But these new methods of production required some people to be freed from the immediate bur burden of working in the fields and to help coordinate the activities of the group and ensure the surplus was not immediately consumed but set aside for future use. So that's really kind of where you start to see the first distinctions of classes. This works fine in times of plenty. It's not a problem. Um, however, in times of drought or hardship, this, set, this setup often requires coercion on the part of the person who's the storekeeper. A ruler or leader had, had to use force in order to keep people working when they were tired and hungry and force them to put aside a surplus even when people were starving or going hungry. So you start to see in times of plenty, things work pretty well. It's okay to store things. Okay. so. I've, you can go for a little bit longer. Okay. Um, it's okay to store things and share and be cooperative, but when things start to get scarce, you see coercion come in, and, and the, on the part of these new leaders or rulers who control the surplus, a coercion of extracting that surplus um, even when people are going hungry. Um, such groups can only keep a surplus in their hands during hard times by finding ways to impose their will on the rest of society and by establishing coercive structures. In other words, states. So here's where we start to see the development of the state. 
Control over the surplus allowed them the means to hire armed men and invest in expensive techniques such as metalworking, which could give them a, a monopoly on the most efficient ways of killing and coercing people. So you have this, this thoughtful development of coercive techniques to be able to extract surplus from other people. But force is only one part of the way rulers ruled. So definitely there was a brutality, um, but there was also, there's also justification that came about. Rulers came to symbolize power, and thus in many ways society's um, rulers took on godlike attributes. So this is where we start to see the development of more institutionalized religion. Coercion and also justification for rulers being above other people. Um, the very fact that they controlled the surplus lent them a certain degree of credibility that was then augmented by the development of organized religious institutions that supported that um, credibility. These institutions enhanced the control of those who claimed responsibility for society's achievements. Those who ordered about the mass of producers, monopolized the surplus, and used armed force against any who rejected their ideas. Once such state structures and ideologies were in place, they would perpetuate the control of the surplus by a certain group, even when it was no longer, even when it no longer served the purpose of advancing production. So, for a certain point, you know, keeping the surplus actually allows you long-term sustainability and survival, but at the point where that no longer becomes an advancing um, mode of production, force, coercion, and the development of the state keeps those structures in place. Um, a class that originally emerged as a spur to production would persist even when it was no longer such a spur. So the class originally arose as a way of helping advance agriculture when it no longer becomes a spur to the development of productive um, agriculture. It still persists because of um, coercion, institutionalized religion, all those things. Thus class strat stratification and a state that serves only the ruling class interests have managed to be features of civilization ever <laughs> since. The form or structure of a particular class society or nation state has varied greatly over time, but the exploitation and oppression have remained. This does not mean class society has gone unchallenged. In fact, the early civilizations um, we've been discussing were subject to class uprisings. The first strike ever recorded in human history took place in Egypt in 1170 BC, when stonemasons, who were the designers and stonecutters of the Great Pyramids, refused to work when their families went hungry because their rations were not given to them on time. So, you know, pretty inspiring stuff. The early civilizations, though they produced great monuments, did not last. The ruling class became too bloated with excess. A growing middle class of merchants and craftsmen developed new technology, but were unable to implement it under the traditional rules. And the wealth at the top of society drove living standards for the poor masses down to the minimum necessary for survival. These factors led to a crisis in the great early civilizations. The ruling class could no longer rule in the old way, and no other class had the social power to take control of the state. So in the end, the great civilizations collapsed and gave way to an era of reversion to what historians call barbarism, to more nomadic society, to societies without towns, literacy, or advanced techniques. So kind of this big advance in human history, followed by a period that looks like a retreat. And you know we can explain that by um, the problems that developed out of these early civilizations. So, so far, we focused all of our attention on pre-class and early class society, so as to answer the question posed by this talk. Um, however, class society has changed a lot in the 5,000 years since it has been around. The basic tools of the ruling class, exploitation and oppression, have lasted. But the methods and means of production have changed. The most significant change that has occurred over the last 5,000 years is the development of capitalism. And I want to spend just a second 
Okay, wow. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna spend a second going through really quickly why I think that's important. For the first time, and this is the key thing, for the first time in human history, an economic system has created a class, the working class, whose collective power can actually topple the ruling class and run society in a new and more egalitarian way, in, in an actual society that's free of the oppression and exploitation that has plagued class society um, since it began. In previous eras when crises occurred, there was no class capable of overthrowing the ruling class, taking charge of the state, and running it in its own interests. So even though we see crises developed like in ancient civilizations and all throughout history, there's no class able to take over control of the state, smash it, and run it in the interests of their own class. Certainly different ruling classes have replaced one another and ruled society in different ways, but not fundamentally gotten rid of class society, which is the aim of those of us at this conference. Like how do we, now that we know where it came from, how do we smash class society? This talk was meant to go back and look at history, not in an abstract academic way, but as a way for us organizing today for a different kind of world to know the origins of the class system we are trying to destroy. Because if we don't know what we're up against, how do we know how to smash it? For most of human history, people have lived cooperatively and communally and worked together to raise everyone up. As a socialist, I believe we can, again, we can live this way again, but not by sharing scarcity, um, but because instead of filling the coffers of the rich with the profits and surplus of our labor, we need to take back control of that surplus and wealth and use it not in the interest of the very few, but for the good of all society. And I think we are actually in a period of time now where that is possible, where it wasn't possible before the development of capitalism. So that's an important thing for us to, to keep in mind. Okay. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.